Welcome to This Never Happened, the podcast. Every episode, I, Tim Stevens, present to the board of what exists some flotsam of entertainment for the elimination from the timeline. Be it album, TV show, movie, or book, I will not hesitate to fight for a better pop culture landscape. I will not stop until the truly terrible and the awfully benign are referred to with the simple sentence, This Never Happened. Aiding and abetting my quest is the engineer, Skip Serpico, and of course, all of you. Thanks for coming. Enjoy the trial. Another week, I guess uh, that means you have something new for us, Stevens. Is it what's going to be this week? A TV show, a comic book, a play? Going to continue to keep it in the realm of cinema this week, sir, with the 1999 adaptation of the same title book, The General's Daughter. Okay, all right. I have a vague recollection of that. Um, proceed. As I stated, The General's Daughter is based on a Nelson DeMille novel of the same name. John Travolta takes the lead as Vietnam War vet and Army Warrant Officer Paul Brenner. Before I go on, I should note that Travolta, who was born in 1954, is too young to have participated in the U.S. draft of Vietnam, and absolutely too young to have served with a particular unit the script claims he did. I know that seems like a nitpicky detail, but it's also a detail that fails to enhance the character or add to the story in the least. It's just one example of the wrong-headedness of this film. There's no reason to have it, and yet they include it as if to flaunt their inaccuracies. In any case, Travolta first appears on screen oozing a syrupy southern accent that thankfully turns out to be nothing but an undercover come on film ditches it at the earliest possible opportunity and is probably the one good choice it makes. Brenner's undercover investigation ends up putting him at the wrong place, but at the right time, and he ends up as lead for the apparent rape and murder of the daughter of the camp's general, General Campbell. Campbell, as played by James Cromwell, wants nothing more than a quiet few years so he can run for vice president of the United States. Over the course of nearly two hours, Brenner encounters one noxious character after another, as rendered by actors like Timothy Hutton, Clarence Williams III, James Woods, and John Benjamin Hickey. Anyone who knows James Wood knows that he can play noxious like nobody. These aren't people who are flawed deep down, we don't realize it, but rather terrible, horrible people to the letter who we hate, I mean, we hate them, and would rather do almost anything than spend any time with them. The only decent person in the script, as rendered by Madeline Stowe, is little more than Brenner's ex and sidekick. She exists to moon over how great her former fella is. So the one good character is more or less dismissed at every possible turn. As the script continues, twists ensue, Someone who the audience clearly knows right away is a bad guy is revealed to be that bad guy. Twice. 
John Travolta is idealized at every turn and elevated, especially by the women in the film. The movie is loud, garish, gross, and self-aggrandizing in the name of its star all at once. And that's why I brought it to you today. This film should not exist. I want you to tell the people this never happened. To that end, I have brought to you today a list of comprehensive charges against this film. With your permission, I'd like to proceed. Please, please, go on. Thank you. To begin the charges, I start with casting John Travolta as a character who's not a villain. I can't stress this to casting directors or the members of this assembly enough. John Travolta as a villain is money in the bank, ladies and gentlemen. Travolta as a protagonist is far more dicey. Anyone who's been here any time at all has seen me go on and on on this topic, and I've even issued a position paper that all of you have read, so I won't belabor the point. But I will stress, it's time for society to come to terms with the fact that modern Travolta should never be anything but a mustache-curling, scenery-chewing villain. Travolta is also a lousy choice here because the film indulges in his bizarre desire to throw away his past Pulp Fiction goodwill. I'm sorry, I misspoke. His post-Pulp Fiction goodwill. Immediately after Pulp Fiction, he made such films as Get Shorty, Broken Arrow, Phenomenon, Michael, She's So Lovely, Face Off, Primary Colors, Thin Red Line, and Civil Action. These were all movies that were either financially successful critically successful or sentimentally successful, for lack of a better way to put it. Sometimes all three at once. During that period, the dark spots are only two, really. Mad City, a movie with Dustin Hoffman that fails on nearly every level, and a movie called White Man's Burden, which is a fairy tale of sorts that completely bungles the idea of race relations in this country. After General's Daughter, however, Travolta makes movies like Battlefield Earth, Lucky Numbers, Domestic Disturbance, Basic, A Love Song for Bobby Long, and Be Cool. Balancing this out, there's really only two. Swordfish, a movie in which he plays an excellent villain, honoring my point, and Punisher, a terrible comic book adaptation where, once again, Travolta playing a villain at least redeems himself, if not the rest of the picture. And to continue with the charges, I would return to Basic, a movie I mentioned in brief. I can't help but charge this film with eternally confusing me about whether or not it's Basic. I mean, I'd ask everyone here today to confirm this for me. I want to be clear here. They are two different movies, right? Yes, yes they are. Okay, because I, I thought so, but then, I don't know, they seem like they're the same thing. One of them does have Samuel L. Jackson. I think that's the other one. I think that's basic. Yes, he's, he's in basic. Okay. So, anyways, uh, it makes me look silly at parties, and I wish it would. Moving off of Travolta, we focus on the film's director, Simon West. Simon West is a director who, quite miraculously, has never managed to make a good film. Ever. His movies include Con Air, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, When a Stranger Calls, The Mechanic, Expendables 2, Stolen, and even the pilot to the NBC show The Cape. 
So when I say he's never made a good movie, I'm not speaking hyperbolically. I mean literally the man has never made a good movie. He's also an incredibly stylized director in the grand tradition of your Michael Bay's, for instance. In fact, most people think Michael Bay directed Con Air because of how hard Simon West ripped him off. I mean, that's frustrating for a lot of people. Not a lot of people love that style. But when you're talking about a movie that deals with the content that this movie does, it's particularly problematic. This movie, for lack of a better way to put it, has a lot of rape in it. An incredible amount. Any rape is not a great idea for art, especially when it's a popcorn pot boiler like this one is intended to be. But sexual assault that is also stylishly and lovingly shot, it seems unsympathetic. It seems a poor choice. It's, it's a grievous choice, to be perfectly honest. Who thought that this was a good idea? Who greenlit the idea that, like, well, you know, there's a ton of rape in it, and that's problematic. But maybe if we make it look, like, really cool, that'll make it okay. It's a terrible idea. And as long as we're on the topic of sexual assault, allow me to transition to another charge. This movie conflates the idea of being sexually assaulted with enjoying unconventional sexual interests. Uh, as if one inexplicably leads to the other, and that's the only way either can exist. And then on top of it, it has characters scoffing at these things, making jokes of them, making light of them. It is disgusting. And finally, no, I'm sorry, second to last. In a very fitting metaphor for this film, Cromwell's General Campbell's only ambition is to be Vice President of the United States. Not President, Vice President. This is a man really reaching for that fence. And finally, and I have no evidence to prove this, but it must be noted, in Sonoma, California, during this time period, there was a very well-regarded restaurant by the same name, the General's Daughter. That restaurant is now closed reduced its output to being a mere catering unit, and I'm sure it does it very well. But I allege to you today that that restaurant would be up and running and as popular as ever, if not for the existence of this movie. As I said, I have no evidence to prove this, but I think I make a persuasive case, and I hope you, the members of the board, agree with me. Well, you do make a pretty strong case. Um... It seems like this movie has nothing, nothing good about it. No silver lining, no redeeming qualities. I would have to agree with that assessment, sir. And, and it's always tough to see a, you know, a local business go out of business. So uh, I think we're going to side with you on this one, Stevens. We will uh, banish this film, General's Daughter, from existence. The world thanks you. Small business owners thank you. Well, we're just happy to be here. Well, a goodbye, baby, gonna be gone a long, long time. Yeah, goodbye, baby, gonna be gone a long, long time. Well, I had enough over this old time. I don't sense me to hang around. Goodbye, baby, gonna be gone a long, long time. 
look back at the vault today and pull from it Ultimatum, a comic book series from Marvel Comics. Sometimes it can be fun to try and figure out what the worst mainstream comic ever produced was. If you're focusing on the modern era and Ultimatum's not in your conversation, you're doing it wrong. Written by Jeff Loeb and boasting the sinewy, grisly, muscular art of David Finch, Ultimatum is a monthly series that took nine months to produce five issues. It boasted 37 character deaths over the course of those five issues, giving it an average of a whopping seven characters plus killed per issue. Even when one takes into account the characters that return to life in the series or shortly after, the casualty rate only shrinks to six deaths per issue. Many, if not most, of the on-panel deaths were grotesque and bloody messes, including, most prominently, two characters becoming cannibals despite never having been cannibals before this series. Blob is caught eating the wasp, and giant man Hank Pym returns the favor by eating the Blob's head. And of course, since this is David Finch we're talking about, every gush of blood and strained muscle is just rendered in gorgeous detail. And don't even get me started on the women's bust lines. The whole thing is an exercise in gritty, too cool cynicism that sees the story making every viscera spray juvenile choice it can. At every turn, it takes the ugliest route possible, bringing what could have been a silly natural disaster crossover event and rendering a noxious affair. If Jeff Loeb didn't set out to write this thing to kill the ultimate universe in the most unapologetically disrespectful way, well, I have a hard time figuring out why he set out to write it at all. Ultimatum. This never happened because no one needs this master-level course in how to indulge in the worst and most cynical possible writing tendencies and cliches in comic books. No one needs this in their collection. It's shock-schlock without purpose, and there's not a soul on earth who misses this thing. Thanks again. Show notes with links to information pertinent to this podcast are available at timstevensisumgaje.com. That's T-I-M-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-I-S-U-N-G-A-J-J-E, all as one word, dot com. Please also feel free to leave comments on this or other episodes there, or to make suggestions about what other pieces of pop culture you think are unworthy of existence. If you prefer to offer your comments and suggestions by email, you can send those missives to thisneverhappenedpod at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, mention it to everyone you know. Suggest they listen. Suggest it strongly. Suggest it in a way that makes it clear that this is more than just a suggestion. <laughs>